Welcome once again to Benchwork, a podcast designed to provide you with knowledge, experiences, tools, and ideas about venture capital, entrepreneurship, and finance. Interviews and conversations with top-notch global experts will take place every week, hosted by me, Hector Shibata, Director of Investments and Portfolio at AC Ventures, a global corporate venture capital fund, and Associate Professor for Entrepreneurial Finance and Venture Capital. Don't forget to follow us for more content on Medium, LinkedIn, and Twitter as ACB underscore BC. With no more to say, hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you everyone for being today with us. It's a pleasure to have Akanshka Hasari. She's the founder of Love Local in India. Akanshka, thank you so much for being today with us. Yeah, I'm super excited. <laughs> Great. So why don't we start the conversation? So first of all, who's Akanshka? Could you please share with us your, a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, so I was born in India. I grew up in India and Hong Kong. Um, I think one of the most, I guess, relevant things about my upbringing is that I'm the first person to go to university in my family. So uh, my mom only got to go to university when she was 45 because we could afford it. And uh, luckily, we started with little but ended up with a lot, touch wood. Um, and that kind of trajectory really motivated me at a young age to um, want to change the world effectively. Uh, when I was young, I didn't know what that meant, uh, but I really knew I wanted to spend my time building something, doing something that would make a difference and make it possible for other people to start where we started and end up where we ended up. Uh, so I was really lucky. I, I got to go to Princeton um, uh, University for my undergrad. Um, I went there uh, as pre-med. I switched to pre-law thinking that, you know, I'll go into politics and, you know, politicians change the world. Um, I realized later that's not true, but that's what I thought at the time. Um, and uh, basically graduated and my first job took me to Washington, D.C. because I thought, hey, let me figure out what happens in the political capital uh, of the world. And I joined a think tank called the Aspen Institute. Uh, but one other interesting thing happened at the same time is I ended up starting my first company completely by accident. So when I went to D.C., you know, it was me and a bunch of friends. And when we joined the Aspen Institute, we realized how little space there is for young voices in Washington. And so we started talking about it. And keep in mind, this is a post 9-11 world. You know, there's a lot of complexity in the States with respect to people who are especially of like brown skin at the time. Um, and so there were a lot of experiences all of us had had at in university and undergrad and then also living in the States. Um, when I went to Princeton, it was the first time I'd ever been to the States. And I had to go by myself because at the time my parents couldn't afford the three flight tickets. So like they packed my bags, put me on a plane and I kind of figured it out. Um, so when we went to DC, we said, well, we should create a think tank for young people. You know, you have Aspen and you have Council on Foreign Relations. Why isn't there a place where young people are included in the conversation and actually today's leaders groom the next generation of leaders and also listen to, to young voices. And so honestly, I know it sounds very cliche, but it started with me and four friends in a basement. And over the next five years, 
after our day jobs, we would go and we would work from like 7 p.m. till 3 a.m. building this think tank. Um, and, you know, like I said, by accident, it turned into being a business and it turned out to grow to be very large. So when I left uh, YPFP, Young Professionals in Foreign Policy, uh, at the time, we were serving a few hundred thousand members globally. We were in three countries and four cities. Uh, we were net three million profit profitable. And, you know, we didn't know anything about VC capital. So this was all bootstrapped and organic. Um, and we were, you know, operating a 200 person team. Um, and so that to me made me realize one at Aspen, I hated politics. I found politics to be very self-interested and unclear. And most politicians felt like they had zero interest in changing the world. But then this experiment um, or accidental venture showed me that you could build something that could change the world. Um, and so I said, oh, I like this. Maybe I can do more of this. Let me get exposure to business. Uh, so I went into consulting for a couple of years. And then I knew in the back of my head, I wanted to come back to India and build my next business. Uh, so I came back in the middle, worked in India in agri-tech. Uh, I picked agri-tech because I felt it would give me a really good understanding of what's happening across the country. So when I did that, I actually lived in villages from like the south of India all the way to the northeast of India for an entire year. And this was just after the mobile wave was kicking off in the country. And uh, the mandate was to effectively look at business models that could leverage mobile technology to increase farmer income. Uh, and when I was traveling, I was like, you know what, I either want to build something in agriculture or I became very focused on local businesses because in every town or village that I went to, there were these, we call them kiranas, but like neighborhood stores. I was like, wow, neighborhood stores are incredibly important to the economy and they have a vast footprint. Um, and that's where the seeds of what is Love Local today kind of came together. Um, and local businesses in India actually directly or indirectly account for 40% of employment in the country. So for, my, for me, it was like, oh, if you solve a problem for local businesses, this actually has a massive impact on the economy and is really important for jobs and, and the success of you know, everybody. And so I went and did my master's at Cambridge. Honestly, I did not go. I went and did a master's in business and economics. I didn't really go as much for the degree as I did for the time. Um, and it allowed me a year to, and I picked a one-year program specifically because I, I knew I wanted to start this business. It, it kind of allowed me a year to write a business plan. And I committed in my mind that, you know, you're not going to apply for any job. So either you figure out how to launch a business or you're going to be unemployed at the end of the year. And so that created like a pressure and I was lucky to enter a business plan competition during that year as well. Uh, and me and the team uh, ended up winning something called the Hulk Prize, which is a million dollar prize. Um, and so I took my share of the Hulk Prize winnings, uh, got on a plane to India and started the company and I moved to Bombay. And I literally know nobody in Bombay. So I kind of showed up with like a PowerPoint presentation a little bit of seed capital from my prize winnings and got going. Wow, what, what, what an amazing story, Akanushka. Congratulations on that. What did you learn from your first startup? Um, so uh, I think the, the first startup built into my DNA, the ability to bootstrap. And I think my background anyway lends itself to that. Um, so we had to think really smart 
Like, so I'll give you some. So my role was basically like strategy and revenue. Like, how do we actually get this thing off the ground? And so there's a few things I realized, like one is how can you borrow other people's brand equity? Because when you start building something, you have no brand equity of your own. So the first thing I did was I went to the think tank I worked in and I went to all the other think tanks. I basically told them, hey, you know, this is a big gap. You guys should be doing this. You're not doing this. There's no young people in the conversation. There's no diversity in your conversation. So how about you do this? Like, I'm not asking you for money today. Um, what I want is I want a space to do my events whenever I want. Uh, and I'll make sure I do it post office hours. So our events will always be post 7 p.m. Uh, I asked for a mailing address because I knew how important, again, brand plays. So I was like, if I have a marquee mailing address, people will pay more attention to us. So I asked the Council on Foreign Relations, can you give us like, can we send our mail here? Can I use you as your official, our official mailing address? And they were fine. And then I said, can you give us just in-kind resources? Everything I needed to like start our first events to then get people to become members and, and start attending the events. Uh, and then finally, I said for our first events, the Aspen Institute, I just want your brand. And this is a benefit to you. You're not doing me a favor. I'm doing you a favor. We'll do all the work, but I'll put your brand on our invite. So this will be to, our first event will be Aspen and the Young Professionals in Foreign Policy. Uh, and I knew that our first speakers had to be really good. Uh, so I convinced the president of uh, the Aspen Institute, Walter Isaacson, who I got to know very well over time then. Uh, I was like, you're going to moderate our first event and I need like a marquee name because that's going to set the tone for who we are. If we make like a splash with that first one, then the ball really gets rolling. So we had, I think Wolf Blitzer was our first round table. And so, you know, we had a great location. It was at the Aspen Institute, which is very well known. We had Walter Isaacson as a moderator. All resources were by the partner. And that kind of got going and created a bit of a buzz. And so that created a pull in the market. We're like, oh, who is YPFP? Like I, as a young person, want to be a part of it. Another similar strategy I did was with all the um, the uh, foreign consulates and ambassadors. So one of the things I realized is, particularly in Washington, all the foreign ambassadors and consulates, embassies really want to build equity in Washington. And not all of them have equal access to like, senior politicians. So I said, what if, you know, I'll give you a marketing opportunity. And the reality is our members are not, you know, they're not in power today, but they're still all the young people who are in the State Department. They're in, you know, all the foreign services. You can have access to them. And if you charm them, you get access to their bosses and they will be in positions of power very soon. You can build a relationship with them early. And so I convinced them to have these really fancy dinners that they would pay for. Um, and so we called it the ambassador series. And so that became like a talk of the town because it was basically these very luxurious, fancy dinners that were hosted at the embassies, whether it was the Swedish embassy or the Syrian embassy or the Saudi embassy. They were exclusive. They were invite only. The ambassador was there. His key team members were there. And it was very hard to get an invite. We only capped, you know, young people being able to attend at like 40 people maximum. And so that started to create a lot of buzz. It didn't cost us anything. Um, and it got to a point, like I remember where the US government was not talking to the Syrian government. If you remember, you know, the mid 2000s, like between 2005, 2010, but we were having this dinner and our dinner became like a parallel channel where conversations were happening at a junior level because it was not an official government event. 
So these are the things that I learned through the YPFB journey. I think another interesting thing is we didn't pay anyone for a long time. So, you know, all of us had day jobs and we realized there are a lot of unhappy young people in Washington who had big dreams about changing the world like us, but we're like doing like serving coffee and making photocopies. So we're like, oh, okay. So why don't you join us? And uh, we'll give you a senior title and you'll get to do the sexy stuff. Um, so we had like an inverse org structure. So the more senior you were, the less you got paid. And for the most like grunt work, we would pay like admins because the young people really wanted to do it because they wanted exciting, interesting work and they wanted the experience of building something. And usually when you're building something, the stuff that drags you down is the mundane day-to-day admin, like nitty gritty stuff. So we actually built this 200 person org where if you were getting promoted, you actually made less money, but your work was like focused on super interesting stuff and it didn't take as much time. So you could keep your, you know, your normal day job if you wanted to. And then we hired like an army of interns and like admins who were paid very like normal rates, but they took all the grunt work off the senior team. So there's a lot of interesting experiments that we worked, I think, because we were young and naive. And I really believe that I think if you don't live in a box and you don't really know what you're doing, you try things that are really crazy and you'd be surprised how much of them, how many of them actually work. Well, amazing. So uh, you mentioned about Love Local. Why don't you tell us what's Love Local and, 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 and how do you set the stone for in order to start the business? Sure. So Love Local is uh, digitizing India's local shops. We are bringing our trusted neighborhood shops online. Uh, in India, uh, the vast majority, so 95% of Indians actually shop from local businesses. For an average household, like nearly 85, 86% of their daily needs shopping in particular, but actually nearly all their shopping happens through local businesses within like four kilometers of their house. And so the economy is really powered by these local businesses. And in the last few years, obviously, we've been going through a massive wave of digitization, which started with the entry of large e-commerce companies in India. So, you know, Indians at all economic levels got exposed to what an Amazon experiences or the Flipkart experiences, et cetera. You then had like a drastic drop in the price of smartphones. Uh, and then in 2018, India had a massive dry drop in the price of data led by our a major telecom here called Geo. So India then came to have the cheapest data in the world. Um, yeah, so I was saying we had cheap data uh, and effectively because of this digitization wave, uh, there's a need to bring local shops online because the Indian consumer is changing. And obviously COVID has been a massive tailwind on the back of that because Uh, it's, you know, I think leapfrogged us another five years faster than we would have in terms of digitization. So we are building a platform that basically is an end-to-end full-stack solution for shops to come online today and basically deliver a complete e-commerce experience for consumers. It's a two-sided marketplace, so we power the shops and also own the consumer experience on the other side. And over time, we will continue to integrate more services into the platform. So, for example, uh, we'll integrate a B2B marketplace where supply side players can sell to our shops. We'll integrate financial services for shops, etc. So that's what the business does. And how do you how do you recommend people to start building the business? What's first, the co-founders, the product? How do you kick off? 
Um, I think the most important thing uh, is figure out the problem you want to solve and why you care about it, to be honest. Um, I think everything else comes after that. And personally, I believe that you really, really have to care about the problem and find find greater purpose in the problem that you're you're solving for yourself because building a company is a very hard and very long journey um i think it takes 10 years to build a company that like really stands the test of time so this is not like a short-term commitment you go in with mentally at least um and i think it matters because also the journey will keep changing the market changes so the problem you're trying to solve is kind of your north star and if you don't have that very clear and you're not driven by the purpose, when it gets challenging, I, I see a lot of people drop out. And it's been really interesting, you know, even in my journey, you start with like a set of peers that started companies at around the same time as you. And you see how much drop off there is in the journey of even just like over, say, 24 months. Um, and, and, and I've realized that, you know, I know it's a very small percentage of companies that succeed, but through this journey, I realized a lot of the early drop-offs, I would say 80 to 90% of the early drop-offs is because people didn't have a realistic view of how difficult it is and they just couldn't take the ride. Um, they realized it's much harder than they thought. It's much more complex than they thought. Um, and if you should definitely not do it if you want, if your driver is that you want to make a lot of money, because there are much easier ways to make a lot of money. I'll just say that. So you may or may not make a lot of money at the end of it. But if that's the reason you're doing it, trust me, there you can find a hundred other ways that will make you money faster and give you less sleepless nights and a lot less white hairs. So I would say that's the first thing. And then later, later, I mean, one of the key elements when you when you build a business, obviously, it's the, either the co-founders or the first people in the team. Do you recommend people to look for certain type of characteristics when building the team? Yeah. So I can, I mean, look, I am a sole founder, which uh, is, I would say, the hardest thing. It's not something I would recommend at all. It was not something, frankly, I chose. It just ended up being how our journey played out. So I would definitely recommend having a co-founder. I would say up to two co-founders max. Uh, I think one co-founder is great. I think I've seen three co-founders work really well when you have like very clear domains. Um, I think beyond three folks, it gets too complicated um, and very messy. I think when you're looking for your co-founder and obviously, you know, I've looked, I thought, you know, even though I didn't start with a founder, maybe I could find people along the journey. The reality is the further you get, the harder it is to bring on a co-founder. So now you're kind of, you pivot into building a really strong management team to kind of compensate and give them, give them ESOPs or equity. But uh, when you're looking for your co-founder, I think first and foremost, fundamentally, you need to be equally committed. So one of the mistakes I see very early in, in a lot of peers is you'll find that one co-founder is very committed to the business and one co-founder is like, ah, I'll keep my job. And then, you know, once this thing takes off, like I'll quit my job. But you cannot have one person that's like one foot in, one foot out and one person that's two feet in. I've seen friction in these types of scenarios build up very fast. Um, and the person who's really committed almost has to slow down uh, because they've obviously have this agreement in place. They've given an equity share. Usually it's your friend, so you can't unwind it. It becomes too complicated. The other thing is like, it shouldn't be based solely on someone being your friend. Uh, it needs to be someone that you genuinely 
can, you know, trust. There's that fundamental foundation and, and you like them and, and you can see yourself working with them for a very long time. Um, you also respect the way they work. I think that's really, really important. I think that can get lost in the equation. Do you have the same work ethic? Do you have, do you have a style of working that both of you respect each other and respect the ability to execute and deliver? And the third thing, again, I see this mistake commonly made is typically co-founders are supposed to complement each other in skill sets. The purpose of having a co-found, two co-founders with exactly the same skill set is a little bit redundant. So, for example, usually in a tech business, you'll have one co-founder that's the business side and one co-founder that's the tech leader, right? So it's very clear what both of you bring to the table and you can clearly mark out which domains in the business that you operate and run. If I was to say it's a three co-founder environment, I think you'd end up with a CEO, someone who leads tech. And I think it's really great to have someone who's incredibly strong in marketing and sales. I think that gives you a lot of balance in the business. Uh, so I think that's the other thing I would say when looking for co-founders. Even if you like the person and, you know, everything, every other box is ticked, think about how your roles play out in the business. Um, do, you, do you actually own different domains? If you both exactly overlap in your skill set, then you're going to end up running into, into each other as you build the business because you're both trying to be the CEO or you're both trying to be the COO, but then you don't have that tech leader. You don't have that marketing leader. So those are some of the things I've seen over time in my journey and I've learned from other people. So as, as you're crafting the product, obviously you build the product, you have the minimum viable product, you launch to the market. So when, but when do you know that you already achieved product market fit? What's your experience in Love Local? So let me put it this way. I believe fundamentally that ultimate product market fit is someone willing to pay. Um, and so the, the approach I've generally taken now, even with YPFP is, You can go through phases of prioritizing growth, but try and get your first 50 customers to pay or 100 customers to pay. Uh, and if after that you want to go back and saying, you know, I'm going to give it for free for now because I'm in like a, you know, market capture kind of strategy, you can go ahead and go back to that. Uh, so with Love Local, I mean, one is I think you need to do it yourself. You cannot hire someone and say, hey, you're in charge of sales. Uh, I think Don't spend a lot of time building the product. Find the minimum viable product that you need. In fact, when I started selling Love Local, there was no product. I just made a brochure of what the product vision is and I spec'd it out. And I was like, can I get someone to like buy into this concept? Because there's no point in me going and building like a hundred things and then, you know, they're not even interested in it. So you kind of do like PMF discovery almost to just like pitching and selling it to a bunch of customers and then see the questions that they ask you and see the issues that they have with the product. Um, and then from that, like I basically, I personally signed up and got our first hundred paid shops when we launched. So I went to the market, I did the beat, I, I wrote the brochure, I you know updated the pitch. That gave me a lot of confidence that I understood the user Um, I understood how they looked at going online. And it's one of the reasons when we first launched, we didn't take shops completely online. We had started, like, as you know, Hector, with the loyalty program, because we thought, oh, okay, all shops want to go online on day one, but the market wasn't there yet. And in 2019, like we, you know, you continue to stay close to your user and you see, okay, now they're ready. Now is the time that you can actually take these businesses online. 
And yeah, the first hundred customers were all paid, which is kind of counterintuitive because you think I'll give it for free from day one. But that gives you a lot of confidence because you see that, okay, someone will is willing to value it and kind of what's the price they're willing to pay for it? Because that also plays into how you think about your business model. Will the unit economics eventually work if they're not willing to pay very much for it? then is that something you can build an entire business on the back of? So I think the main thing is, you know, on day one, like don't build something that's very expensive and fancy. In fact, you can just go and like conceptualize it in a brochure or a PowerPoint presentation, go and talk to a bunch of who your customers would be and say, Hey, um, you know, I have this solution for you and pitch it to them, see their reactions, get their questions and you will get the requirements from the user. You may go in with a pitch and the user will tell you, you know, I'm not really interested in this, but I've been facing this really big problem. And do you have anything for that? And you may find then out of the 50 people that talk to you, like 30 all raise the same other problem. You may in that process itself pivot into saying, oh, I didn't see that this was a really big, you know, more important problem for this user today. Let me solve that first versus what I originally thought I was going to solve. I think that's the way you go into it. And then you start building after that. And then as, as you have achieved product market fit, how do you scale a business? Is it, is it more easier rather than at the very beginning? No, uh, so, so I really love what Steve Jobs said because tech leaders don't really say it. I think in, sometimes product and tech leaders think if you build something, the world will come. It doesn't work that way. Um, you know, Jobs was one of the unique tech leaders to say you have to build excellent product and tech and then you have to have excellent sales and marketing. Um, and Apple is known for its phenomenal marketing strategies. They're like leaders, market leaders, pioneers in what they did in marketing. So marketing, sales and distribution uh, is incredibly, incredibly important. You could have, I've seen mediocre products be more successful in the world because they had successful marketing and distribution that over excellent products that had very weak sales, marketing and distribution. So I think there's another thing that gets kind of turned on his head. Don't spend time building the perfect, perfect product. Spend time on also once you have something that is good enough to start, start spending time on distribution, marketing and sales. Now, how to do distribution, marketing and sales is a very vast question. I think it's very specific to the type of business you're building. Uh, I think if you're in anything that's consumer tech, uh, which we essentially are, we deal with local shops. So because they're so small and the volume is so high, they're kind of also like consumers in a way. Very honestly, and this is not a this is not a game changer. Digital is incredibly important. Uh, what we are seeing um in terms of how to use digital, uh, it's going far beyond, for example, performance marketing. So because performance marketing has become so noisy, all of us get so many ads like from everywhere. The actual thing that you, in terms of, I would say building a young brand, uh, building a young company is actually building a brand in your target user community. So try and build a strong reputation in that niche and then use like digital influencers, use content marketing very heavily uh, and get into those communities. And then on the back of that, start doing performance marketing because doing something like, I mean, doing digital ads on day one, if in, in such a noisy world where this is the core distribution channel for everybody in tech and most brands, if people don't recognize your brand, even if they see your ad, uh, they're not going to download the app 
for example, or they're not going to buy the product. The reason why an ad works on the back of content marketing, developing a niche in the community and all these things that works is because then they know your brand and it's kind of a recall mechanism. The other thing um, is in terms of building the brand first and building strong reputation and community is you get a lot of organic virality. So I can give you the example of shops. As a business, we've not actually done much marketing for shops at all. Like our marketing budgets for on the shop side of the business today to basically tell shops we exist is like a few thousand dollars a month. It is nothing. I mean, we need to ramp it up because we want to grow more aggressively. But, and why that is, is that, you know, we started in Bombay. We really let local shops fall in love with us and they started talking to each other. And so we developed a reputation in the local shop community. And that started to spread and they started to refer each other. And then we started to get shops saying, oh, you know, like my brother also has a shop. He wants to bring it online or I have this friend that has a shop. Do you guys take this type of shop online? And so on the shop side, we really used organic heavily. Similarly, when we started with consumers, um, we actually let our shops do all the acquisition for us. So we built shop self-promotion features into the app. And another thing, for example, when shops sign up, uh, we give them, uh, we actually mail them like a kit. So, you know, when you get a credit card, you get like a nice envelope and you get the card. So we kind of borrowed that concept, except they get like a love local kit, which includes like a hundred flyers, a hundred paper shopping bags, a little counter standee. So they actually can self-promote and they acquire consumers for us. Plus we enable them to upload their own consumer phone numbers into the shop app. So these are very simple things. Well, we basically eliminated our cost of consumer acquisition, which is typically the most expensive thing. And so, you know, we got to 200,000 consumer, consumer app installs without spending much on consumer marketing as well. So I think if you do the legwork and first and foremost, develop a reputation in your customer community, your target user, one, by building great content great product and great experience for your first set of users. So they tell other people, make it easy for them to tell other people, then start, you know, through content marketing, through good branding. It could be offline activities. It could be through Instagram influencers, finding their Facebook groups, start being in those groups and being present in those communities and use content a lot. Um, let them organically tell each other about it and then find these growth hacks. So can you get one access or self-promote to another user? Uh, and then as you scale at some point, you'll have to double down on marketing and actually spend because that will take you so far. 10, 20 X, you'll have to adapt your strategy. Okay, Gauri, thank you. So I'd say for startups, sometimes it's very relevant to partner with corporations. Uh, any piece of advice for entrepreneurs in order to how to engage with a corporation? Because most of the times when, when the startup starts, they are very tiny. They are very little vis-a-vis corporations. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, it is, it is a challenge. Honestly, I think enterprise businesses are, 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 are a slower burn in a way because consumers or users like us, you know, there's high in volume, they're much more experimental, they're easier to, to reach. I think if it's an enterprise business, um, just keep in mind their sales cycles are long, first and foremost. If you're young, they're going to take time to make that decision. Um, 
sometimes honestly they don't themselves know what they want exactly are you talking to the right decision maker i think the process itself becomes much more complex i do think it's hard i don't have i don't know if you can skip that stage of difficulty um i think very honestly in business and in life building relationships is very important and so you'll need to anyways build relationships if that is your target customer like you're selling maybe you're going into saas for 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 large businesses uh you're going to have to either either if you build the relationships or you know if that's core to your business then have a co-founder who heads sales or helps helps kind of partnerships that comes with those relationships and they then can open those doors for you and cut out some of the legwork um and to start with you just need one to sign up right so one approach is you have a co-founder that has the relationships relationships made a huge difference so maybe they have one one brand that's you know they're very close to maybe their ex employee of that brand they can open that door and they can get a pilot going what you need is one successful pilot to then show everybody else uh hey it worked with this company and so we can also do it for you the other approach is to go for challenger brands there's a lot of young companies out there uh startups are far more experimental uh if they can use a similar solution challenger brands and young companies may not be able to pay you as much but they're much more willing to try something out and you'll cut out a lot of the noise uh and that's another way to kind of circumvent the big company problem to get you know one or two experiments going get successful pilots under your belt you know maybe have like a few clients and demos to show and what happens is they'll start referring so maybe initially for the first you know 5 to 10 clients they're all small brands and then you can go out and get your first kind of marquee large client and you'll also be a lot more comfortable uh because you have the training under your wheels you don't want to do an unsuccessful pilot with a marquee brand that's large that is very very hard to recover from what well, what are the key mistakes that typically first time entrepreneurs do I think I, I mean the I, the team one I I discussed a little bit around around the co-founders I see that a lot. I think hindsight is 2020. I'll tell you some of the things that I I have learned and I would change if I went back. One of them is around team. I think I would have paid a little bit more for uh for more experienced people uh, earlier on. So, you know, uh when you're early you're like bootstrapping a lot so you're like trying to get like smart people but you're trying to like save as much money as you can and so i think in my earlier journey i went a little a little too much the other way and when you when i look back i mean what i was negotiating on was honestly like a couple of thousand dollars a month but if that was the difference between getting someone who i would have to manage versus getting someone who knew exactly what the hell they're doing and i don't have to think about it um it's definitely worth paying that so i would say early on um you won't have a lot of money to hire whatever money you have i would tier towards get one or two people in the key areas that are most relevant for your business and spend a little bit more to get those like really really strong a players and then you get you can spend the rest of the money actually hiring just extra hands for them at a very junior level so they can exponentially scale themselves because ultimately they'll hit a bandwidth problem and generally i find that formula works like get very strong a players to lead and a players literally like what they need eventually to scale themselves is more people to execute and people to execute uh don't cost as much so if you build like this at least i think until your series a 
maybe, you know, till early series B, you should build that way. So that's something I would do differently. Um, other mistakes I see being made, like people spend their money too fast. Uh, they think they have product market fit before they have product market fit. Um, I think, <laughs> I think take your time. And I think don't buy into the hype that, you know, all these companies were overnight successes. If you kind of scratch below the service, they were operating for like five years longer than the press will ever tell you about. So, I mean, one example is like Gojek, right? People talk about Gojek, like it started in 2015. Gojek launched in 2009 and from 2009 to 2014, they were figuring out what to do. And from 14 to 15, they kind of started to see, you know, how that, that, that curve suddenly started to uplift. And then with 2014, 15, 2020, they've grown like crazy. But Gojek is like an 11 year old company. Um, I'm sure we will go through the same story and some poor entrepreneurs will think we were an overnight success. Love Local is a one-year-old platform. However, Love Local was Empani before that for two years. So it took us three years. It took us two years to figure out like retail. We then built Love Local and now Love Local is growing like crazy, but it's not something we just, you know, launched in January. Everything was perfect. We had the product magically all the cards came into place. It's a team that went through the process of figuring out product market fit um, and really grinding for a couple of years behind the scenes to then launch this company. So, so it takes time. Conserve your cash until you have PMF. And don't, and I know Hector, you're an investor. You're a great investor. So you're not in this bucket that I'm going to describe, but don't buy into the hype of investors that um, will tell you, don't worry about revenue don't worry about runway. We'll write you another check when you need more money. Just grow like crazy. I've heard this so many times. Um, I have never bought into it. We've always been very lean as a team. And it's always in the back of my head that like how we get to revenue, how we get to cash flow positive is something that like is very, very important to me. I've seen this happen to so many startups. Um, investors can change what they're interested in really quickly. And these startups, you know, kind of believe the hype. They went in and they spent all their cash in 18 months. And in 18 months, the investor was like, well, you're not making money. Or, hey, you know, I know I was interested in 18 months ago, but I'm not interested in writing another check now. And so that was it. That was literally the end of the company. And there have been companies in India, like, for example, housing.com is the classic story of this. They raised $100 million and then no one gave them any more money. And they went from being these like massive company that made no money. So they were growing like crazy and there was a lot of hype around them, but the hype died and the company therefore also died. And there's like a graveyard of company because of this, because of this thing. So I think uh, don't buy that hype and make sure you get the right when, if, if the way you're raising is getting investment partners, really make sure you get the, the right investment partners because the wrong investors will drown your company. Um, we've been very lucky. Like I love our board and I think they're incredibly supportive. I think the quality of your board shows through tough times and the pandemic was certainly a tough time. Um, and you know, they were incredibly supportive. Um, there were challenges that we had to solve as a business. Um, I got saved frankly in our seed round. There was an investor that I'm so glad didn't end up being on our cap table. And on retrospect, I know they would have killed us as a company. Um, and now I'm very clear, like, you know, I know if you're running out of cash, sometimes someone may give you a term sheet and may feel like, oh, I just need to do this. 
it's it will be very painful but wait till you click with someone wait till someone really shares your values and trust you as a founder first of all is going to let you make decisions and 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 run with how you think you should drive the business at a fundamental level has a shared vision of how one builds a company and core values at a person level and at a business level and when those things match that investor will really really like help you on your journey Thank you. Thank you so much, Akanshka. Any any final recommendation you would like to share with entrepreneurs? Really hard. <laughs> Don't do it unless you really, really want to. That, that's the best one. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're but I do, but I do right. when I when I hire, I actually like I'm not like once I like I I don't sell them, I scare them. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> It's really hard. <laughs> They're gonna be really, really bad times. <laughs> Are you late nights? Yeah, You're yeah. working the weekends. Are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> yeah, I know. Thank you so much, Akanshka, for your time sharing your experiences with us. It's a pleasure having you today.